welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Look what our God's marvelous grace is growing there and uh, for his glory. And what a worshipful song, Sarah. And uh, we're praying for you. Our scholar is headed for Harvard, right? Okay. <laughs> Back in the early 90s, there were several people who believed in a biosphere, a self-contained um, ecosystem in which they wanted to try an experiment of living for about three years. And so they invested $250 million dollars and they constructed a steel and glass enclosed biosphere about 4,000 feet elevation out in the Arizona desert. And they entered into this biosphere wearing Nassau-like blue jumpsuits. They proudly marched into this three-and-a-quarter-acre self-sustaining ecosystem in which they were hermetically sealed off from the outside world. And it was complete with a mountain and a waterfall and 60-foot trees and a rainforest, entirely self-enclosed, self-regulating, and self-sustaining world. And when they came out, at the end of less than their goal of three years, they were at each other's throats. God has placed us as human beings within an ecosystem, and if you consider it in terms of the whole universe... There is a very narrow margin where life is sustained on this earth. Correct? Not a one of us could really sustain ourselves at 37,000 feet where the airplanes fly, except we were in an artificial environment. Not a one of us can really live out in the oceans or underneath uh, the surface of this earth for very long. But God has placed us within a very narrow, sustainable atmosphere in which human life can exist. Now, Ellen White makes this interesting comment. She says in Steps to Christ, page 68, that God has encircled the world with an atmosphere of grace as real as the air we breathe. And that means that everyone who breathes, it is surely Everyone breathes it as surely as he takes his next breath. Everyone on this narrow strip of life is sustained by God's grace, by God's grace. Someone asked a very serious question about grace. It's, they asked, does grace program you to do things, to do good things? Does grace control you? Does choice come into the picture? Well, God is definitely almighty, but there is something that he cannot do. 
and that is he cannot force you to believe, and he cannot force you to obey. But God reveals his grace to every human being. God reveals it. What is grace? It is God treating every human being as though he were righteous when in fact he is not. He's done that since the world began, all because Christ, who is our second Adam, the new head of our human race, and and just as we are all by nature in Adam having a common sinful nature, so now since Christ gave himself for us, the Father generously, he graciously treats us all as his own beloved son. And in Jesus' name, because he has adopted us in Christ as though we had never sinned. He treats every human being that way. That is his grace. I would say that's totally undeserved and unmerited favor. Amen? But this amazing grace does not force us to be good. We're free to reject it. We can choose to despise it, just like Esau did there, when he chose to despise the birthright that was his by natural inheritance. And those who do reject this free grace will discover in the day of judgment that they have trodden underfoot the Son of God and have counted the blood of the covenant whereby they were sanctified as an unholy thing and have done despot unto the Spirit of grace. But the Spirit of grace is given to every one of them because God is no respecter of persons. And they were given the spirit of grace, not merely offered the birthright. God gave them, not merely offered them, the spirit of grace. And that is an extremely important point for us to grasp. That is that God's grace is given to every man given to every person, and it is as real as the atmosphere that encircles the globe that every man has breathed. Now, the Lord's Supper teaches, it teaches us that every man enjoys physical life because in eating his daily food, he is nourished by the body and the blood of the Son of God. No lost person will be able to come up in the day of judgment and accuse God in the end Why, you didn't give me as much as you gave the people who are being saved. Every child of Adam was equally given the birthright to eternal life. Everyone was given equally the gift of salvation in Christ. And so when you realize this gift, you cherish it. You love it. You clasp it to your heart. Amen? Or you can despise it. And you can cast it away. If you cherish and love it, then that means you believe, you receive it. And when you believe, that faith goes to work immediately, but not without your consent. You have something to do. You choose to receive the atonement, this gift of salvation. The grace of God, the Bible informs us, that brings salvation to all men, has appeared. It teaches us to say no to all of Satan's temptations. That's Titus 
chapter 2, verse 11. No, grace does not force you, it does not program you, it does not control you, but it teaches you. It teaches you to say no. Shall we not make a choice then to learn, to learn from grace? Now, wherever there is bad news, there is also some good news, and the good news we want to emphasize is better than the bad news. Now, how do I know this? Because we read just a few moments ago from Romans 5, verse 20, that where sin abounded, and that's the bad news, grace did much more abound, and that's the good news. So, consider how this wicked world is repeating the history of the earth just before the flood. And then we'll consider the good news about much more abounding grace. First of all, the flood of Noah, the earth then was filled with violence. The earth was corrupt. The people were given over to sexual license and took them wives of all they chose, the Bible says. They were given to sinful pleasure and debauchery. And the wickedness of humanity in general was great in all of the earth. Jesus said that just before his return again, that wickedness would be repeated in the earth as in the days that were before the flood. He said they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. How striking are the similarities. And while much of the world starves for a good meal and for protein, just think, Americans spend $3 billion a year on gourmet food for their cats and their dogs, even employing doggy psychologists and psychiatrists. And we don't read that they did that kind of thing before the flood. Selfish depravity is everywhere, but now where is the good news? In Noah's day, there was an ark that was provided where anybody who believed the good news, they could enter into it and be safe. Amen? That was the good news in Noah's day. And so today, the Lord God has an ark of safety where anybody who believes the good news can find a refuge. And that ark, dear friends, is the fellowship of God's people in his church. I cherish the fellowship that God has given to me in his church. Yes, I thank God for you all. I'm by nature an impatient man. But patience will bear its fruit, its perfect fruit. And God teaches us patience in the fellowship. I thank God for this ark of refuge that I'm not left alone. Open your eyes of faith. There are others who, who are sharing your faith in Jesus, who open their Bibles and love the Bible and who respond to God's call to repent. And yes, you'll find fellowship in, if you'll humbly seek the Lord. You'll find fellowship. There was a young pastor who just had uh, received his call from the theological seminary to go out to a pastor, a church, and he was a very sincere and earnest fellow. He was interested in preaching the gospel of the good news to his congregation, but he had some questions and a concern. His question was, is there a danger in preaching too much about the cross? 
Is there a danger in talking too much about the grace of God and talking too much about God's love and not balance that off by preaching also enough about the law and obedience and duties because he doesn't want to be a pastor. He doesn't want to be a pastor of a lazy congregation who take advantage of cheap grace and clothe their religion with a thin veneer of love and grace, which covers hypocrisy. He was encouraged to believe what the Bible says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Cheap grace is indeed a counterfeit message, a detour around the atonement of Christ, You can't preach too much about the genuine grace that abounds much more than all of the sin that the devil can heap upon a congregation. If what Paul says is the preaching of the cross is clearly presented to a congregation, then sin and hypocrisy cannot flourish among them because grace conquers sin. Grace eradicates it. The power, you see, is in the gospel itself. The power is not in the law. And Paul says, and don't doubt, pastor, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And says Paul, that's impossible. You can read that in Romans 6, 14 and 15. Now, being under grace is different than what many superficial people imagine. It means, to be under grace means that you're under a new motivation that is imposed upon you by a very deep heart appreciation of what it costs the Son of God to save you from hell itself. That's what it means to be under grace. And this is where you see the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of Christ at his cross. And that motivation is far stronger, far stronger than the fear motivation that you can use to beat the heads of your people in your congregation. Because the pure, true gospel is not a perfect balance between faith and works, the true gospel is a message of faith which works by love. How many good works? I'll tell you, infinitely more than what legalism could ever produce. So don't be afraid to preach salvation by grace through faith which works through agape. You cannot preach it enough. Now, bad news comes at us almost everywhere you turn. And the morning news has segments about growing problems of curse words being used by Americans of all ages, including females and teenagers, indecent words that are spoken and crude sexual words in the lips of young girls. seems to be the in thing now that young ladies swear more than the men do. And some state has decided to revive a 103-year-old law that 
they've recently invoked to try to curb the cursing. And so the county prosecutor hopes the case will stick as an attempt to do something to clean up the dirty language that has become so popular. It, in, it, it new, induces us to ask the question, are we, we really slouching towards Gomorrah? And the answer culturally is yes, we are. But at Pentecost, Peter pleaded with the people. He said, save yourselves from this perverse generation. And God-fearing parents are rightly concerned about the future of their children that are growing up in a generation that is on a very slippery slope that is meeting alluring temptations they've never faced when they were young. And they've even seen a U.S. president who has taught a whole generation of children lessons in degrading sex and rejoices in phenomenal popularity. Another translation of Acts 2.40 renders it, Be saved from this perverse generation. Be saved. And that's clearer because we can't save ourselves, but we can let the Savior save us. And even Christian people are in danger of being deceived now, says Jesus. He warns us that temptations will be so severe today that if it were possible, they will deceive even the very elect. And one of the most dangerous deceptions is the deception to believe that bad news is winning out over good news. That Satan has more power than does the Holy Spirit. And that is precisely, friends, what Satan wants Christian people to believe. Because if they do believe it, he has them caught in a trap. The truth is that Good news is stronger than bad news. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And rightly understood, the message of the cross has more power in it than all of the allurements of the world. If you doubt this, take another look at the cross. Perhaps you've never really appreciated what happened there. Many who think they are spiritually rich and increased with goods and know all there is to know about the cross haven't looked at it recently. Studying about the origin of sin, there's much good news, but studying about the eradication of sin, I say that is better news. The very first page of the New Testament declares that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. God cannot eradicate sin from his universe until he has first eradicated sin from the hearts of his people. And that is where sin has taken root in the human heart because it's the last lair where the dragon of sin lurks. Sin's roots go down to our toes. Can sin be overcome? Can it be eradicated? The outcome of the whole great controversy between Christ and Satan depends on the answer to that. And some say that sin itself will never be conquered. Until Christ comes the second time and just zaps his saints and gives them holy flesh, removing temptation from them, and the implication being that as long as you and I have our sinful flesh, sin will still win out. But the Bible is very clear in Romans 6, 13, and 14. Even though we still have sinful flesh and sinful nature, sin shall not have dominion over you. 
For ye are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 5.20, grace did much more abound than sin abounded. In other words, the idea is clear that grace is stronger than sin. If that is not true, then the great controversy is going to end in the defeat of God. God forbid. 2 Corinthians 5.14, this grace of God operates through the revelation of the love of God. Therefore, the love of Christ constraineth us. Henceforth, to live not unto self, but unto him who died for us and rose again. And the love of self is the taproot, the very essence of sin. It's the quintessential element that filled Lucifer's heart in the beginning and which here at the very end of time forces the church of the Laodiceans to be lukewarm in heart. John 12, 31, not only did Christ conquer the problem of sin by his sinless life and by his sacrifice on the cross, in order for the great controversy to come to an end, he must have a people whose faith demonstrates that such love will constrain them also to overcome, even as he overcame. And the bright picture at the end of the Bible is heaven's spotlight on a group who stand on a sea of glass and they are mingled with fire, who have gotten the victory over sin, having the harps of God. And that wasn't accomplished by zapping them with sinful flesh, but by giving them grace to overcome in sinful flesh. And so we ask the question, which is stronger, Christ or the angel who fell from heaven, Satan? Which is stronger, light or darkness? Which is stronger, love or hatred? Which is stronger, the much more abounding grace of the Lord Jesus Christ or the power of evil, evil appetites and habits and obsessions and addictions? Which is stronger, the power of death that held Jesus Christ captive in Joseph's tomb or the resurrection of the Father that raised him up after three days? And we can't say it often enough that much more abounding grace is stronger than all of the power the sin of sin the devil can invent. In fact, there is in that grace much more power. Let's not try to serve God with anything less than that full power of that much more abounding grace that's revealed in Christ. The grace of Christ is the enemy of sin. It condemns it, it defeats it, it conquers it, it annihilates it so that we might be free indeed. And then the grace of God will be manifested in us in a newness of life. That grace reigns through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we discover something precious. It's easy to be saved and it is hard to be lost when we begin to appreciate that much more abounding grace. We must not conclude that the upward path is the hard path and the downward path is the easy one. It's the opposite. All the way that leads to hell, there are impediments, there are obstacles to hinder us in that way. God is constantly trying to tell us this. It's like 
driving on the freeway. You're at the wheel because you are the boss. But the Holy Spirit is sitting right beside you in the front seat, not the back seat driver, the front seat. And he's saying, don't stay on this freeway to hell. Take the exit to the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit is going to do when he gave the Holy Spirit the name Parakletos, the one called to sit down beside you and never leave you. So don't misunderstand. You do have something to do. It's to make the constant choice to let the Holy Spirit guide you. Let him. But please remember, you are not your own Savior. You let the Lord Jesus save you. It is you who turns the wheel onto the blessed exit coming up that leads to eternal life, but the Holy Spirit guided you to do it, and you praise the Lord forever and ever. There is comfort also buried in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus himself is speaking a prophecy of himself there, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Get this, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, acceptable year, and the day of vengeance of our God. And I want you to note that the abundant time of loving acceptance of the Lord toward repentant sinners is an entire year of 365 days compared with only one day of his punishing vengeance. Paul says that where sin abounded, the Lord's grace did much more abound. The grace wins out. So what saves us is not craven fear of punishment, although millennia for millennia people have assumed, you know, the only way for Wickedness to be controlled is just to terrorize people with the threat of punishment for it or warn them about all the terrible consequences that are going to come upon them because of sin. But there's a wonderful passage in Paul's letter that on the surface at first seems to suggest that, knowing therefore, it says, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But when we look a wee bit deeper, further, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says, The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. All would be dead if he had not died for all. And that he died for all, that they who live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who died for them. And when your sinful heart contemplates, when it judges when it comprehends that grace, suddenly the bands of wickedness are broken. You're set free, and henceforth you are constrained to live unto him who died for you your second death. Now nothing can stop you from giving yourself heart and soul to the Savior who died for you. Yes, died your second death, entered into hell to find you there and to save you. There was a, a vacation Bible school going on in a church, and 
a lot of the kids from the homes were crowding to the vacation Bible school, and someone had the privilege of bringing them a brief message of good news each day. And so looking into the faces of these children, one pondered, well, what, what could they what will they be like when they grow up? Can something be said that will stick in their minds and hearts, something that would grip them while they were young so that they would not forget? And that has to be possible because Paul says that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So if that's true, then it follows logically that it is not necessary that we lose so many of our young people to the world. I suppose a person could scare our young people, give them terrible warnings, tell them of the consequences of premarital sex, but today's kids are used to being scared. They love it, whether it's the scary rides at Disney World or the dinosaur movies or the cheap movies. To them, being scared is entertainment. Now... They love having their hair stand on end, but there's something that doesn't come through at Disneyland or in the videos. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And such grace is almost totally unknown in the world that these kids are growing up in. And then we turn on our radios and we hear Dr. Laura Schlesinger, a stirring American with her call to get real and be moral and be honest and stop this me-first philosophy and get your moral act together and grow up ethically and be sensible. And all of that is okay, but can it be an effective bulwark against the moral rot that is permeating modern society. At best, it is like preaching the law, the law, the law. And the law is good, but let's face it, there's no power in the law to change human hearts. Not until that grace is revealed in a Savior who didn't try to climb up the ladder, but climbed down the ladder to find you and me in the lowest hell, only then can sinful hearts be changed. This one verse with special attention, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. There is the gospel in clarity. Every blessing the world has ever known comes through that grace of our Lord. Don't ever suggest that such grace comes only to those who deserve it. And don't suggest that only a little grace comes to those who don't deserve it. All of the grace of Christ is given to all of the people, even though they don't deserve it. Which really means no one deserves it. A wise writer said this in Steps to Christ, page 68. In the matchless gift of his Son, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace, as real as the air which circulates around the globe. 
All who choose to breathe this life-giving atmosphere will live and grow up to the stature of men and women in Christ Jesus. Beautiful statement. That means everybody breathes it as surely as he takes his next breath. If it wasn't for that grace, we would be in hell itself. So Paul begs us not to receive that grace in vain. In other words, everybody receives of it, but only a few appreciate it. Only a few say thank you for it. Christ was once upon a time rich, but he made himself to be poor. That doesn't mean he temporarily laid aside his wealth like a millionaire who has emptied his pockets temporarily and can't buy a newspaper. It was for eternity Christ emptied his heavenly savings account. And he became so poor that on the cross he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin. And all of this self-denial was so we could become rich. Not in the by and by. It doesn't say become rich in the far distant future. So put on your seatbelt as you contemplate this. The wealth of heaven is deposited as a credit in your account. And you can write a check on the whole of it. Well, then why don't I possess it now, you ask? And the answer is because you could never enjoy its possession until, first of all, you share the experience of Moses, who esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. There's a new song that you and I have to learn to sing, the song of Moses and of the Lamb. But while you're learning to sing it, that full credit from Jesus' bank account is in your name, and it's time to be happy for it and to be thankful for it. See, before you were ever born, Jesus deposited a trillion billion dollars in your account, and that's why you're living right now. Amen. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.